Walt Disney Pictures presents a tale of great wonder, magic, and fantasy. The Sword in the Stone. You'll follow the adventures and thrills of the daring, brave young Arthur. A boy who wants to be king. And his guide, Merlin, the wise old wizard. <laughs> that is what I call a wizard blizzard. On their secret quest for the magical sword. With a little Disney magic, they'll go underwater, racing across the sky. And into a world of enchantment. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez. Andrea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. We are doing another We Miss TCM Classic Film Festival sadness episode from day 135 in quarantine. It feels like 135. I don't know what day it is. It's Gregory Peck's birthday. Oh, Samantha! <laughs> but also Betty Davis. But we don't talk about Betty Davis. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk about Betty Davis. I don't know about you. You could talk about Betty Davis. And Dre could talk about Gregory Peck. And I'll talk about how Spencer Tracy looks like a potato in the nicest way. <laughs> These are all good themes. All April 5th birthdays. <laughs> oh, we are talking about a movie that has none of those things. It's good to have them there in spirit. But we are doing our first animated film. Yes, it's been nearly 100 episodes, and we have not done a Disney animated feature, which, if you know me, that is weird, because I am a Disney nut. But this was Drea's selection. It was going to play at the TCM Classic Film Festival this year. It is 1963's The Sword and the Stone. How good are we all on our Arthurian legends? Did we brush up before the podcast? Because of course we did, right? I actually know a decent amount. There's two tracks that especially young girls take. You have, this is of my remembrance, horse girls that get super into like anything related to horses. And then girls that get super into anything related to royalty. And I was a royalty girl. Somehow I made King Arthur's Court fit into that. That took me in a lot of different ways. I was obsessed with the mists of Avalon, which is the Arthurian legend through the eyes of the women of the story. Morgane of Fay was one of the lead characters. King Arthur's legend I know a decent amount about. I know enough to know that it's mostly all fiction. Uh, <laughs> that there's been so many. It was a huge Welsh background of fairy tale storytelling. And so it started with a much more welsh sounding name so the legend of arthur including the sword and the stone grew over centuries at this point of twisting in a way that i actually find similar to the idea of dracula that that everyone is like oh but it traces back to this real story and you're like well it sort of traces back that a lot of the things were added in after the fact. These are all things, of course, that are not in this movie, which we can talk about. But some of the main characters from what you think of as King Arthur's story were not part of the original Welsh or any of the hybrids that came from theirs. I have a decent working knowledge, 
but please don't put me up against any scholars because it will be embarrassing for me. I saw The Miss of Avalon and this movie. That was about the extent of my Arthurian background. They made a movie out of The Mists of Avalon? Yeah, with Juliana Margulies. I had already read them all by then. I think I didn't watch it because I was a real book snob for a minute there. I might have to check that out now. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, what about you? What was your prior Arthurian legend background before The Sword and the Stone? This is like a prequel, right? So I can't say that I've read the books on it like Drea has. I was more into Greek mythology. Most of the films that I had seen growing up before watching this movie were more related to Arthur's later life, the affair between Guinevere and Lancelot. I've got like... Camelot with Vanessa Redgrave in my mind and First Night with Sean Connery and Richard Gere. And that's about the extent of my King Arthur knowledge. Wait, Samantha Ellis has seen a Sean Connery movie that's modern day? He was my mom's favorite, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Also, Richard Gere is one of my favorites. Oh my god, we are learning so many things. Nose 90s actors. I am just shook right now. <laughs> That's about where it ends for me is Richard Gere. I make the exception for Richard Gere. Sounds about right. Disney's The Sword in the Stone. This is directed by longtime Disney animating director Wolfgang Willie Reitherman. It has a story by acclaimed author T.H. White, but the actual script story is based on around children's book author Bill Pete who was a longtime animator that burned Disney when he wanted more money. And Disney and him didn't get along towards him. But it tells the story of a boy named Arthur who learns things from a wizard named Merlin on the path to becoming King Arthur and pulling that sword from the stone. I don't know how long this episode is going to be because this movie is only an hour and 19 minutes. I have seen this movie probably about four times. It is not the worst Disney animated movie. That distinction goes to Oliver and Company. Do not at me about this. Oliver and Company is trash. It's not my favorite. This movie's one really great end sequence with the wizard's duel. The rest of it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with Arthurian legend in maybe the most tangential way because... It's a film that is broken up with Arthur doing things that supposedly have a lesson, but really just have him turning into animals for fun vignette sequences, and they have a point. I feel terrible saying that, because when Sam and I talked last week, she said this was one of her favorite movies. What do you guys think about The Sword in the Stone? I can kick off, if only because I recommended this one. And I recommended it, like Kristen said at the beginning, we're concentrating on films that would have been at the TCM Film Festival. And because I'm also a film festival programmer, it's always interesting to me looking at which films are curated to bring to an audience. TCM has a wonderful edition. They'll often have these unique insights brought via the guests that are either presenting or taking part in a Q&A, which can inform some of their decisions and how those films ended up in the lineup. But for this one, I disagree because it actually has some of the best lessons that can be learned 
from a Disney film. I don't disagree that it takes a big meandering jump. It's almost unfortunate that because the legend of King Arthur and the actual sword in the stone element are really just bookends to a completely different narrative. They're set in place. The idea was Luther Pendragon was the king that brought everyone together and he's the one that put the sword in the stone and only the true heir and next king of England could remove it and then no one could for years and it became this forgotten myth. It's a great story hanger, right? It's the idea of that anybody could actually have this power to them. Also, your faith or disgust in the idea of a monarchy or a bloodline being indicative. Royalty wasn't just looked at as being powerful or better or smarter. They were also seen as closer to God, which is nonsense. However deeply you got into that, it became even crazier thinking of oh some unknown could be part of this and have that magic in them and be able to release this sword as a thread for a narrative as this framing device and i don't think that this film has any interest in exploring any of that part of it but what it does is it mimics or maybe it trendsets what becomes a very popular thing the entirety, 80% of this film, are very fanciful variations of training montages. And the training is all being done by Merlin. I love Merlin so much. He's the scatterbrain wizard. He's unable to see time in a linear fashion, so he doesn't always know where he is. He makes references to things in the future that they don't know what he's talking about, which I find endearing. Why this thing resonates with me is I loved that what Merlin is constantly teaching Arthur and the lesson of all of the transformations he's doing is that it's better to be intelligent and thoughtful than it is to be strong or fighting or masculine. There's such an emphasis on intellectual power, which I don't know however many children's movies we're doing. I'm really glad that you chose this film. I first want to go into the why of it. Looking at the fest schedule, this originally took the place of the Jungle Book. No, it was Robin Hood. Both of them were announced, but Robin Hood ended up being canceled. Got you. Initially, Jungle Book was, correct? Or was it the other way around? Privy to that information. You could be I got myself confused. I'm pretty sure what happened was Sword in the Stone was always on the lineup. Robin Hood was initially on the lineup and the Jungle Book replaced Robin Hood for whatever the reason may be. I just want to first and foremost say I'm a huge, huge Disney fan. I grew up watching just about every single one. My first exposure to the Sword in the Stone was... When I was really, really little, I don't know about you guys, did you guys ever watch the Disney sing-along VHS tapes? Yes. Well, I remember the fish song being on those VHS tapes, and I used to sing along to that before I had even seen the movie. I can't exactly tell you when the first time I saw the movie was, but throughout the course of my childhood, I've seen 
pretty much every single one. I've developed an affinity, not only, of course, towards the older ones, because I'm now making those old Hollywood connections, but also I just love the ones that aren't discussed as much. And I feel like this is one of those movies. Now, technically, I don't think it's great. There's some great animation. Some of it is reused. They're working with a tighter budget in the 60s and 70s. It's a bit of a mixed bag for me. There's some great references, as Drea touched on, that Merlin say. It feels a little bit fourth wall breaking to me, which is a style of humor that I always love. I definitely would have made an effort to see this if it had been in theaters during the fest. I got to see Floyd Norman last year when they were recording the intro and everything for Sleeping Beauty. I got to see Sleeping Beauty on the big screen. And that was the first Disney film that I had seen as part of the fest. Jungle Book was actually going to be a repeat. They had done that a few years before. Before Sleeping Beauty, they hadn't done a Disney film at the fest in about four years. The fact that they were going to make an effort to keep things repeating with an original animator is so, so cool. And I really wish I could have seen it. My Sword in the Stone thing is, it's not my favorite. It's up there. It's up there because I really love the references. And and as Drea touched on, the lesson of the film is the power of education. And that's such a good lesson to teach kids. As Drea mentioned, it's something that's not the moral of a lot of other stories, especially for young boys, I can imagine that this would be a really good film to show because a lot of princes and male characters and Disney features around this time, all they really cared about were, is he strong? Does he have a sword in his hand? Can he vanquish the dragon? Whereas Merlin's character doesn't care about that at all. He finds that education and knowing what to do in certain situations is more important. And I love that lesson. That's great. I encourage it. I do appreciate that we're touching in the last couple episodes, it seems to be a through line, of masculinity and how this plays with that. You both are really onto something that I didn't necessarily think of in that it's a story that praises intelligence and quick wit over brawn. I just wish that had been developed more. Dre is completely right. It does feel like this is bookended with the T.H. White story. At the same time, that's a very densely packed. If you've looked at T.H. White's book, it's a brick. I've tried to read it. It's a lot. There's also a lot of things once you start getting into the nitty gritty of Arthurian legends that aren't exactly family friendly. So how do you make that into an animated feature where you focus on the relationship between Merlin and Arthur, otherwise known as Wart in this movie? The elements of masculinity that this movie teaches have merit, especially in that weird sequence with him and the squirrel. Arthur is a squirrel and the lady squirrel is into him and to break her heart. There's this element of honesty to him that he can be like I can't be with you I'm not a squirrel that is very simplistic it's a film that doesn't have huge lessons but they do feel like huge lessons to children which if anything what maybe separates people 
from this movie is that it is a film that is so heavily geared towards teaching kids something. That's not even the only lesson. You actually brought up another good one. In addition to it focusing so strongly on the importance of education, it's also like a really great coming of age story. I'm just imagining kids watching this who are about Wart's age, looking at that squirrel scene and thinking, oh, this girl did that to me at school. Now I know what to do. Or something like that. It touches a lot on different ideas of masculinity. I actually really love the scenes between Wart's adoptive dad, who's very brutish and unintelligent, right up against Merlin. I love their interactions because they're so interesting because they're two totally different types of people And I love that they show that. I feel like Disney really didn't show that much. Very few movies show that much. Two totally different brains trying to have a conversation. I wish that they were just brains in jars because I like how you describe that. Two different brains trying to have a conversation. The characters in this are really lasting. If someone brought up the sword and the stone to you and it wasn't something you'd seen since childhood, you would remember pockets of it in such a specific way because it's so visually inventive since they're literally taking the form of fish or squirrels or birds. Merlin, I adore Archimedes. It's not even that he's a talking owl. It's that he's an educated owl. Like any animal could talk if it became educated. Madam Mim, who I forgot only pops up. At the very end, she's also a sorcerer. There's a whole showdown with her and Merlin. There's a lot of really lasting characters and moments in this. This is a film that very much knows its audience. And its audience are not just kids, but younger kids. Kids who like that sort of free form. Their brains aren't in jars yet. They're nice and pliable. So many stories when you're young, both Disney animated and otherwise especially the stories that have female protagonists, which with this one doesn't have. Even for kids' stories, there's always love interests. And so the Disney films like Sword in the Stone that don't have a love interest in them, this Fantasia, Jungle Book, Bambi, there's only this narrow alley of films that don't have that cooked in. And it's nice showing kids stories that don't revolve around the number one thing is to fall in love is important. It's important to be thinking of other things of like, oh, no, the number one thing is to watch the most weird imaginative. I said the word fanciful before, but this is the idea that Merlin's like, oh, we're going to learn lessons today and we're going to learn those by I'm going to turn you into a fish And then when a larger, actual predatory fish discovers you, I'm going to leave you to your own devices to get out of it because that's growth. That's crazy. And I love a little bit of crazy in any story, but definitely children's stories. It's understandable why Disney made this at the time that he made this. As somebody who also does a Disney podcast, I know way too much about Disney history. This was actually in development starting as far back as the late 1930s. When World War II broke out, the studio actually was restricted by the government 
So they had to make cartoons for the armed forces, which is why you get a lot of the quote unquote great Disney short subjects like Defuhrer's Fade that are also incredibly racist. So go in with that knowledge. After they released Snow White and the Seven Dwarves back in 44, Disney started working on the Sword in the Stone alongside Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. But it took a long time for them to really get the story right. And by the time that they got to the late 1950s, early 1960s, Walt's brother, Roy, wanted him to discontinue making animated films because they had enough movies by that point that they could just keep re-releasing them and make money. Disney, always knowing that reconstituting old product is a surefire moneymaker. Then they made that transition because Walt wouldn't discontinue animation completely, that they would make movies every four years. But the hardest thing for Bill Pete to figure out with the story was the fact that the Arthurian legends are just so dense. He found, quote, the narrative complicated with the Arthurian legend woven into a mixture of other legends and myths and finding a direct storyline required sifting and sorting. If you've watched any of Disney's live action output in the 1960s, Walt didn't really know what the kids were watching. You had a lot of really bizarre movies that felt felt older, felt like an earlier time because the 60s were such a turbulent era of change that he was just trying to grip desperately onto what he knew. And if you look at the Disney movies that came out leading up to this, especially 101 Dalmatians set in modern England, he really wanted something that had a staunch moral code. And that's what The Sword in the Stone really is. You know who's good, you know who's bad. There's not any gray areas to any of these characters. It's this time of romantic chivalry. In the last episode, when men were men and women were women, I said it when we did our Based on a True podcast episode recently, there's this concept of masculinity that, yes, is focused more on intelligence, but men can be all things. Merlin and Arthur can be intelligent. They have the power within them to have that compensate for strength, their inner fortitude. So I think it really appeals to a lot of the themes that Disney was really hoping in the 1960s in this time of great change that would only get worse as the decade goes on, trying to go back to this nostalgic time period of romantic, dashing chivalry. That's a really interesting point. A lot of Disney historians have actually put all of the different films in very distinct eras. Sword in the Stone is such a great product of the Bronze Era. First you have the golden era right before this with all of the really fantastic classic 50s Disney films like Alice in Wonderland, then you've got Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, and so forth. And then you have the Silver Age with some of the also classic but not quite as well remembered, like 101 Dalmatians. Now you're getting into the Bronze Age where you have this right up there with Robin Hood. Those are both really great, really comparable films because not only are they both really cemented in my mind as two of the best, this and Robin Hood, you see the little bit of a decline starting to happen. You have brilliant minds still working on this. And the director was one of the nine old men. 
At the same time, you see that they're having to scale back on budget. They are reusing a lot of animation. I don't know if you guys could tell, but Wart definitely has some reused animation from Mowgli. So much. Literally, there's a scene he's pounced on by dogs and it's exactly the same. Some of the scenes where he's laying in the trees too feel like they're Jungle Book sequences. Right, absolutely. If you look it up, you can find the exact instances in which it was redrawn, which they say saves time and money. I don't quite understand how, because you basically have to do a whole new animation over it. (laughs) I digress. You can tell that Disney is approaching a crossroads here. You have inventive storytelling, really inventive characters, but they're also starting to cut corners a bit like they didn't used to do that. This has an interesting place in history, has an interesting place in my heart as far as Disney films go. Drea touched on something really, really great because the issues are in the story structure and in the pacing, whereas the characters are all flawless. They're all really unique. They have some great dialogue, some great scenes, but it doesn't flow like a story should. It doesn't flow like the story should at all. It does almost feel like, and Disney had been dabbling in television for a couple of years, it feels like this is the grave foundation of a television show. You have Merlin sitting around. He knows somebody's coming to meet him, but he doesn't know the who, what, when, where, why. And Arthur literally falls into his lap through his roof. And from there, they have this thin reason why Merlin and him would be connected in terms of he's teaching him how to hone his skills. But you don't really know what for. You don't really know what the end game is other than the fact that the opening implies that somehow the sword and the stone will be utilized. But a large swath of this hour and 19 minute movie is Arthur going into various disguises with Merlin in order to learn some grand lesson, much like an episode of the Mickey Mouse Club would. For a lot of people who have been used to Disney's three-act structure in those films like Cinderella or Peter Pan, you don't get it. It's a very blocky, chopped-up narrative. Even something like Alice in Wonderland, which doesn't have a conventional plot per se, still has that three-act structure of rising action, building to a climax, and then falling. You don't get that here. Merlin and Arthur turn into fish to learn about physics. They become squirrels to learn about gravity, which I find it hilarious that they're learning about things that would not have existed in Arthurian times. Gravity was not necessarily a thing. Although Merlin has a way around that. He says that he's able to see future events and he's created different things like a, a train engine and an airplane. So you have those elements of anachronism that would work within the movie. But then when it finally does return to the sword and the stone and Arthur pulls it out and becomes king, it almost feels like an anticlimax to me because the movie still has maybe about two minutes left. He's the rightful king and he's sitting on this throne room with Archimedes and doesn't really feel prepared for ruling. But Merlin comes back from Bermuda and Arthur is resolved to become this great king. But wouldn't any of those lessons that we just had Arthur learn make him feel a bit more confident? I don't know. 
yes, Arthur is a child who has now become king, but the whole point of the movie was to prepare him for that. But the minute he is king and Merlin leaves, he just has no concept of what to do. Each scene would make a really good little television episode or short, but as a whole, it would make a really good pilot. It would be such a good springboard onto other potential episodes. The following episode would start with, okay, now he's king, but Merlin is still teaching him stuff about ruling. That would make a really great spinoff show. Now that you mention it, (laughs) that's actually really clever. I agree about this being an anticlimax. The pacing is so strange. The fact that it ends with him pulling the sword out of the stone, and then there's a little bit afterwards talking about how he's not prepared despite the fact that it's all about his education. It's weird. And the fact that Merlin comes back and is like, oh, it'll all be all right. It doesn't feel like an ending for me. We want more than that. We want more than that, but it still does dovetail into exactly what Merlin's been teaching him, which is that learning happens forever. You never stop learning. It's not like you learn a finite amount of skills and then you're prepared to be king. This is all deeper subtext that your average child viewer would not be gleaning from this, but the idea that a child ruler would have a backbone of these lessons that Merlin had been imparting him with and then is now given this ridiculous overwhelming power and then is like no you still need to learn and you'll have advisors you'll have people guiding you I totally agree that the book ending of this is haphazard you could completely remove the Arthurian legend part of this movie and make it just and then it would definitely play in that TV feel of like, here are little imaginative bits to teach us these little lessons. But if you're trying to paste them onto this through line of King Arthur, then the idea that learning never ends is nice, as murky as that may be. It feels anticlimactic because we have not been talking about the power structure of England, the power vacuum, how they need a king. We have not seen any ambition or longing in Wart. Wart is fine doing whatever. Wart will just wash dishes and call him when you need him. He's psyched to be a squire. And there's something about the lack of ambition in this kid that is supposed to play off that, oh, that is who should ultimately get to rule, is someone who's going to care more about knowing what they're doing, someone who's power hungry and gets the throne, does not sit there and worry that they don't know how to do it. They just do it and they go mad with power. Arthur is just an unambitious little dude who's wondering what to do because he actually cares. So there's a lot of things you could take away from it that may or may not require more heavy lifting from a viewer than other things. I can see that this did take years of story development and is maybe one of those things that got meandery and murky along the way. I can still see shades of it in where they ended up. There's this sense of what is Arthur being groomed for. And I almost feel like maybe if we had a couple more characters, things might give it a bit more depth. We only have Merlin, Archimedes, Arthur, the adoptive father of the Pendragons. You have Sir Kay, who's the big brawny dude who's 
Arthur's stuck with him. And then you have Mad Madam Mim. There's really a very small amount of characters in this movie. So Arthur is really very isolated. He doesn't have anybody teaching him how to be a person or how to be anything. It's similar to The Jungle Book. But in The Jungle Book, I almost feel like Mowgli, because there are so many characters, and The Jungle Book has such a similar structure. I almost start to wonder if The Jungle Book came out after this, correct? Yes. Yeah, about four years afterwards. This is 63. I almost feel like this walked so The Jungle Book could run. Because The Jungle Book also has a similar choppy structure of Baloo and Mowgli go to this place and then they learn this and then they go to this place and they learn that. But because there is this through line of getting him to the man village and you have the villains who are present throughout the entirety of the film, you get more depth. This movie opens with Arthur meeting Merlin as he's being chased by a wolf. That doesn't really go anywhere. The same for Mad Madam Mim, who Arthur, again, literally falls into the lap of when he's a bird, you think that maybe that's going to lead to something and it just really doesn't. It's this sense of delayed gratification that really stymies the narrative because you understand how thin it really is. And it's also worth pointing out that a key reason Disney did this movie was because he saw Camelot, which was a huge Broadway production three years ago that was still growing strong. And that was predominantly the one reason why he greenlit it because he figured that the Camelot wave was going to go far. It did for a time. It has that old school time gone by that just feels very dated by 1963, whereas The Jungle Book has that immortality to it, probably because they changed a lot of Rudyard Kipling's racist colonialism from the original novel and transformed it here. It's a very choppy story. That's a really interesting take. The thing that we don't get, we don't quite get the side of is what is Merlin's motivation in teaching Wart? Yes, you could say he simply wants him to be educated. He doesn't want him to have the life of being just a simple, ordinary squire. But on the other hand, Wart just fell into... Merlin's lap, as you mentioned, Merlin doesn't know why he is destined to meet Wart. I don't think he knows that he's the one that's set to pull the sword out of the stone. He's not even there when he does it. You're watching the film, you're watching him teach Arthur all of these different things, but you don't really understand the why of it, aside from avoiding a boring uneducated life if we had more motivation on that end not just what he's pulling arthur away from but where he's pulling him to then it might be a little more satisfying and there might be more of a structure if we understood what the plot was pulling towards there's a lot of bitterness in watching this if you're a disney fan this was the last film that walt disney personally produced because he died during the production of The Jungle Book. I know a lot of people consider The Jungle Book the last Walt movie, but this was the last one he saw to completion. So it does feel like, eh, this is the film he went out with. Bill Pete and Walt Disney did have this long-standing relationship until they started making The Jungle Book, and Walt Disney threw out Bill Pete's story. 
which caused them to have this massive falling out and then Bill Pete left the studio. But I think another key reason that especially like diehard ride or die Disney fans have antipathy towards the Sword in the Stone is because of a movie called Chanticleer. The Chanticleer Sword in the Stone feud is a really interesting time in Disney history. And I know it has nothing to do with the content of this film, but I just love to bring it up because it was the big controversy if you were a Disney nerd and it still holds true today. When they were developing this, at the same time, Ken Anderson and Mark Davis, who were also long-term Disney animation masters, were developing a film called Chanticleer. You might know the story of Chanticleer as the 1990s animated feature Rockadoodle about a cocky crow who has to essentially learn not to be a vain douchebag. And they wanted to make this animated feature in this contemporary setting. They did this massive amount of artwork to make this satire. If you've seen Chanticleer artwork, go Google it. It's beautiful stuff. And they started doing this in the 1940s. Chanticleer is actually a play from the early 1900s. Similar to Sword in the Stone, they both had these old source texts. So they were doing this huge, huge preparation, these elaborate storyboards, and they did this pitch to Disney. It's a huge part of Disney legend. They heard a voice from the back of the room say, you can't make a personality out of a chicken. When the time came to approve the projects, Walt said that you couldn't make a protagonist a rooster because, quote, you don't feel like picking up a rooster and petting it. This went on for two decades almost, and Bill Pete was kind of the guy that screwed over Ken Anderson and Mark Davis, because when Walt saw Camelot, he decided to approve Sword in the Stone, and supposedly Milt Call, who had also been working on this film, and Wolfgang Reitherman was going to direct this film as well, but Milt Call got so furious at Bill Pete because he didn't push Chanticleer. The movie never developed and the storyboards are still there. But a lot of people, if you ask them about the Sword in the Stone and their Disney nuts, they're like, that's the movie that destroyed Chanticleer. So I had to throw that out there. Who knew? Disney feuds. I love that story. And I love the idea of artists feuding behind the scenes because it happens all the time. The other thing I would be heartbroken if we didn't talk about, because it's one of the weirdest elements of this film it's not related to a feud, but it is related to aging. And that is the fact that young Wart, our lead character, is voiced by three different actors and not like, oh, as Wart ages. No, just within even scenes, his voice will change. The original kid who was cast to play him aged out as they were filming. And then the director's two sons filled in to do the rest he's also oh my god i can't believe we are 45 minutes into the only discussing now that's for some reason the voice of arthur aka going to be king arthur is american even though all of the other characters have british accents and that american accent then is played by three different guys which is the funniest thing to me the idea of not fixing that is crazy. It's only noticeable in some scenes. I just think of like stereotypical American tween. So I don't really differentiate the voices as much, but it is jarring in some scenes. And I didn't even really think about 
him not being British, which is a travesty in and of itself. But according to Disney, any of the supporting characters can be from other countries, but the main character's got to be a true and true All-American. And Ricky Sorensen, who was the main voice of Arthur, was a bit player in television predominantly. I think this is his biggest claim to fame. It's shocking when he opens his mouth because I don't know what I necessarily expect because, again, the same elements and really the characters recycled from Mowgli and Mowgli has an American accent and that is a very American movie set in the jungle. But here, because you know this is England, it feels very shocking in a way that most classic films are when you find out that they take place in England or France or ancient Israel's. You hear poor Ricky Sorensen's voice crack throughout the entire movie, and then it's eventually changed here and there with Richard and Robert Reitherman. It's very noticeable, and it does feel like a bit of Disney sloppiness that is just something you're like, you couldn't have planned for that better. There had to be a different way. Monty Python also ruined this movie, too. If you saw Monty Python before you saw this, the Holy Grail really leaves you wanting for a bit more. We haven't talked about the animation and what I consider the best sequence in this movie, which is the wizard's duel with Mad Madam Mim. I find it funny that Mad Madam Mim has become this big Disney villain and she has such a small amount of screen time in this movie. And Disney did recycle her characterization for a couple other witchy characters throughout their television life. But she is a lot of fun, especially in that performance where she's singing to Arthur and she's transforming into the beautiful woman what I find so great about that sequence is that even in the wizard's duel, you can clearly tell that the traits that establish Merlin and Mad Madam Mim are retained. Even when they're an elephant or a fire-breathing dragon, you know which character is which because their characters are written and animated in such a loving way that you know who they are. That wizard's duel would not work with Arthur because we don't really know who Arthur is. If you watch this on Disney Plus, it's the restored version. The animation pops in a similar way to Sleeping Beauty, which has that tapestry feel to it. You see that layering and you see that use of color. It's very bright and it's just, oh, it's so beautiful. It, it all looks like stained glass, especially in the beginning and the, the end. It's such a pop of color throughout this whole film. I do love the sorcerer's duel so much. And I love, like you said, the pop of color that Madame Mim is always a bright pink with like a red or magenta under. And then Merlin is always this blue. Her hair is always present. His spectacles are always present. I really like the animation throughout this. And I know that there's a fair amount of recycling of source whatever that would be called, the plates behind that we're picking up, like Mowgli's actions, and then it's the same movement Arthur's making. There's so much of this is pastoral. I love how the forest looks. I love the underwater. I found this really beautiful to look at. It felt like a storybook I would want to pour over rather than sometimes you're just watching and you're like, yes, this animation is getting me from A to B, and I know what's going on. Because so much is, are just these sweet sequences that are flights of fancy, one of the reasons it mostly works for me is because those flights of fancy are visually engaging. 
despite the recycled animation, these are really unique and lovable characters and really well animated characters. The Wizard's Duel is a perfect example of that. I'm so glad that you brought up Milk Call, Kristen, because I feel like his work should be praised possibly the most. He has a really distinctive style that he brings to the table in this and in a lot of other films of the era. He also animated Shere Khan and just those really interesting and especially animal characters that have their own distinct traits and their own distinct movements throughout all of his work. It's so, so brilliant. And that's one of the reasons why I love this. And I love the use of color perfect comparison to a stained glass window. I'm a really big fan of the background work in Sleeping Beauty. That's the best background animation of any of the Disney films. So I wouldn't say that it's quite Sleeping Beauty level, but it's still really, really great stuff. It's one of the reasons why I'm so sad that this isn't being shown at the festival, because it's a movie that doesn't get talked about. And it's a movie that the animation is so great. I would have loved, absolutely loved to hear from one of the original animators because he was still starting out around this time. I would have loved to hear Floyd Norman's exact work. He went into a little more detail during the Sleeping Beauty interview about what he exactly animated with the Three Good Fairies, just like Jan Bauer? I believe is her name. The other animator that was there last year, she talked about how she animated the candles on the cake as well as did some cleanup work for Aurora and Sleeping Beauty. So I would have loved for them to go scene by scene, figure out exactly how he contributed to this film and hearing stories about the animators that he worked with. I really hope that they bring him back next year and show another one of his movies that he worked on. If not, hopefully this one, that would be really great. Anything else we want to touch on before we close it out? Archimedes is one of my favorite characters in any Disney film. He's so funny and witty, and I feel like we did not touch on him enough, but he's just the cutest little owl, and he's so adorable, and I love him. (laughs) I also love Archimedes, so I'll just back that up. Really, I just wanted to make sure I didn't forget to point out the American voices, So um, I'm going to feel good about this regardless. The Sword in the Stone, if you're a Disney completist, it's worth a watch. Disney's done better, both in regards to medieval set stories, in terms of adapting popular literature of the time. It's a very haphazard movie. It's got a very thin narrative. Reviews were mixed in 1963 when it came out. And it's a film that suffers from a lot of what was going on behind the scenes in this changing time of where Disney animated films were falling for the American public. It's not my favorite by a long shot, but I certainly do not begrudge others who love it. Drea, Sam, what are your final takeaways about Sword and Stone? This is charming. It's something people should be watching with younger kids. And I certainly think if you're an adult, there's enjoyment to be found. The audience for this and the people who will enjoy it most are people who can really just disappear into the lovely vignettes and not worry so much about um, how the legend of King Arthur doesn't really get a full shake. 
There are a lot of things to point out that are subpar with this film, as opposed to how Disney went above and beyond in the past, as far as the effort that they put into their animation and voice acting and everything related to their films. There's a lot of good about this film as well. It's really inventive. It teaches some really good lessons. It's a really good film to show your kids, to show your kids that wouldn't necessarily read between the lines as far as the production quality. You're still going to get a lot of fun out of it too. It's a really entertaining movie despite its flaws. Send us your thoughts on The Sword in the Stone, Disney Animation, any of that. You can email it to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read it on the next episode. But that's going to close out this episode of the podcast. You can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. You can read my classic film work over at journeysandclassicfilm.com or you can check me out over at IndieWire if you are interested in modern day television. Drea, where can fans find and get in touch with you and see your work? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and I also co-host another podcast called Who Shot Ya on Maximum Fun, of which one Kristen Lopez was just recently our guest. So yes, you can find me there. Samantha Ellis, what about you? Where is your work? What's going on there? You can find my website at musingsofaclassicfilmaddict.com. You can find my Cooking with the Stars posts on classicmoviehub.com. I recently had a Doris Day article and just more recently a Debbie Reynolds article. And you can follow me on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. And as always, you can find the podcast wherever you get your podcast, Stitcher Radio, Player FM, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, ratings and reviews help. So feel free to leave us one. And we are also on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. If you want to learn about upcoming episodes, get some exclusive merch, hear other podcasts that I do, then consider supporting Ticklish Business via Patreon. We have a lot of great perks, extra audio, and all your donations go straight back into the show. I do two bonus podcasts. One is based on a true podcast with William Bibiani. We just recorded our latest episode on LA Confidential, which was a lot of fun. I also have new audio, my interview with actress Kelly Garner, who played Marilyn Monroe in The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe is also there for you to listen to. I'm also prepping to mail out the pins that everybody helped us make are unfortunately not happening tcm classic film festival boyfriend pins that we made i'm trying to figure out if people want them now or not with the current situation that we're in in terms of whether people want to handle stuff everything is disinfected but i'm trying to figure out a good time to mail those out to everybody and we have some great stuff in the hopper that we're going to start doing so that's over at patreon.com slash ticklish biz now we have one more it was going to play at the TCM Classic Film Festival this year, a movie that we are honoring. Samantha Ellis, this is your pick. So why don't you take us out with what we're talking about next episode? I couldn't overstate my excitement for this one because we're talking about my favorite film of all time. I don't exaggerate. We're talking about Jewel Robbery from 1932 with William Powell and Kay Francis. I had the chance to see my favorite film of all time on the big screen, and it's not happening, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to make lemons out of lemonade, so that will be next time. Till then!